From time to time, we dip into the Psalms for a few weeks, often in one of the summer months, uh, looking at these sacred songs. And so uh, we're going to do that uh, through the rest of July. Today, in two more weeks, I want us to uh, have a look at Psalms for Troubled Souls. Um, John Calvin uh, wisely put it that the Psalms are an anatomy of all parts of the soul, meaning that you have all the emotions in the Psalms. Uh, you can identify with uh, all that is said uh, throughout these 150 chapters. And today we look at uh, just a wonderfully encouraging Psalm, Psalm 27. And so let's pray together before we look at it. Father, I pray for all troubled souls here now in this room or online or in the overflow. We're grateful that you know us, you remember our frame, you know that we are but dust. Who are we that you're mindful of us, but you do care for us, you know us, you've sent your son on behalf of us, and we pray that now this text would be a great source of encouragement to all of us, and even for those who may not find themselves in a season of fear or trouble, they would be able to take this word and use it to counsel others, to encourage others. So teach us your way that we may walk in your truth. Unite our hearts to fear your name, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I've been meditating on Psalm 27 every day for the last couple of months. And what more do our hearts need than the truths of this psalm? Who among us doesn't know what it's like to wake up at 2 or 3 in the morning just filled with anxiety and fear? I certainly know that experience. Or to dread that phone call that you don't want to take, or to open that inbox and see the email you don't want to see, or to go to that meeting that you don't know how it's going to turn out. We know what it's like to live with fears, and the the question is, what do we do with them? Because we all have them, and often they're embarrassing even. I I read recently about uh, one of the top uh, NBA basketball guards uh, today, Trey Young. Trey Young plays for the Atlanta Hawks. He's a lot of fun to watch. But ironically, he has a fear of birds, the guy who plays for the Hawks. And uh, it's a phobia that he developed uh, prior to going to college. And in college and now in the pros, opposing teams have been known to make bird sounds and chirp at him and hold up bird pictures. And, uh, and Trey Young has this phobia. I mean, here is a top uh, flight guard who is a fearless basketball player, and he's afraid of birds. But I can't look down my nose at him. I have my own fears that are very unimpressive. This is the first year of my life I've I've experienced some some mild panic attacks, uh, four or five occasions, every time. So when I was driving, I've never had anything like that before. I had to pull off on the side of the road and ask my wife to drive. I've driven in major cities. I've driven all over the country. I've driven in countries where they drive on the wrong side of the road. And, uh, and here I'm having these experiences. Uh, we all have fears. We're human. We're frail. And so what do we do? Do we kind of adopt the karate kid mantra? You know, just toughen up, as they say in the dojo. Fear does not exist in this dojo, does it? No, sensei. <laughs> David shows us a better way than uh, the karate kid. And, uh, I mean, you think about David himself. Here's a guy who killed lions. He killed bears, and yet he's expressing his own fear here. But he fights his fear by trusting in God, and that's what we learn in this psalm. So you may be afraid of stuff. It may not be creatures today. It may not be birds. It may not be traveling. Maybe your fear is failure. This is a very success-oriented city in which we live. 
or maybe you fear not being accepted or not being cool or being hurt by someone. Perhaps you fear not having enough money or maybe it's a health issue you have or maybe you've set out on a new bench, uh, business venture and you don't know if it's going to work or maybe you're relocating to a new city. Maybe you have fears about your kids that they will reject Christ and live in rebellion. You fear losing control. You have some worst case scenario in your mind. David in Psalm 27 shows us where to put our confidence. It's not in ourselves, it is in our God. This is what's called a psalm of trust. One of the psalms that is a psalm of confidence. David is uh, surrounded by his enemies. We don't know exactly when he wrote Psalm 27. It could have been on one of those occasions where he was running from King Saul. Nevertheless, he is in a time of fear. And what keeps David sane and faithful is what will keep you and I sane and faithful. And that is his confidence in the Lord and his communion with the Lord. That's what we need. To renew our confidence in our Lord and to commune with him. And that isn't to say we won't have any more fears. It's not like a, a, a quick little uh, fix, you know. Uh, David here shows us in this very psalm what it's like to be conflicted. The first six verses he's speaking about the Lord, and then he pivots in verse 7 to speak directly to the Lord in what turns into be a lament, a desperate cry. And so you might think of Psalm 1 to 6, verses 1 to 6, as Sunday morning. And Psalm 7 and following is the rest of the week. We know what it's like to have that peace, to enjoy the beauty of the Lord, to have confidence in the Lord, and we also know what it's like to say, Lord, where are you? Have you forsaken me? And so let's look at this psalm in four parts. David teaches us, number one, to renew our confidence in the Lord in times of trouble. Secondly, to seek the presence of the Lord in times of trouble. Thirdly, to cry out to the Lord in times of trouble. And finally, to wait on the Lord. Renew your confidence in the Lord Verses 1 to 3, by reminding yourself of who God is. That's what David does here. His confidence is not in himself. It's not in his strength. It's not in his experience. It's in his Lord. And he calls him here light. The Lord is my light, and he is my salvation. Therefore, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold or refuge of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord is our light. This is an expression of all that is good, truth, beauty, joy, God's presence, safety, guidance, healing. The Lord is our light, and in him there is no darkness. Jesus said he is the light of the world. In new creation, we're taught that the lamp that gives the light will be the lamb himself. The Lord Jesus Christ is our light, and we know many things about light on a basic level, we know that light brings life, right? Our, our flowers grow when they get proper sunlight and then the deer eat them. That's what happened to me. Light is symbolic of truth and purity and goodness. We say uh, regarding truth that the lights went on when you learn something and it's the Lord who, who brings truth to us. The Lord illuminates our path as the light is known to illuminate one's path. We drive with our lights on. So we can see people say bad things to you if you don't have your lights on when you're driving at night. Light provides safety, which is why kids like to sleep with the lights on. It provides healing. It provides joy. Vampires don't come from Hawaii where it's sunny. Vampires come from the Pacific Northwest where there's no sun, 
That's why they're bad, right? The Lord, there is no darkness in Him. He is our light. He provides the guidance, the safety, the beauty, the truth. He makes things grow. He is the source of our spiritual life. Darkness conveys all that is negative, sin, death, discouragement, evil, fear. So David says, I have nothing to fear because the Lord is my light and he is my salvation. So the word that's used, it could be translated deliverance. He's the, the Lord is my deliverer or the rescuer. It's the same word we get the word Jesus from. Jesus is derived from this very word here. And we say that Jesus Christ is our rescuer. He is our deliverer. He is our savior. He has saved us from our greatest threats, our greatest problem, and he continues in his faithfulness to save us from our little problems. So long as we can say he is my savior, my light. Notice how personal David here is here. If you're not a Christian, that's an invitation to receive Jesus as your light, to receive him as your savior. And we need not fear if that's the case. And he is our refuge. We'll get more into this next week as we look at Psalm 46, where uh, the psalmist says, God is my refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble. Our God is a great shelter in times of terrifying storms. I love Psalm 57. Be merciful to me, God, O oh God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. Under the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. The storms will come. And the question is, do we have a refuge? Our God is like a great guarded city when all of our enemies surround us. And we go to Jesus and we're safe. Psalm 2 says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. If you're in Jesus Christ, you are blessed. You have refuge. You have light. You have salvation. Therefore, we do not need to fear. David describes his enemies vividly in verse 2. He says, when evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh. He describes them like a, a pack of wild animals. They, they want to devour him. Psalm 22 carries the same idea. Psalm that was on our Lord's mind when he was crucified. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. And we too have enemies, don't we, friends? We, David describes them in verse 3 as an army. So they're organized. They're prepared. They're, they're aggressive. Though an army camp around me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise against me, yet my heart shall be confident. We have an enemy as well. Even if we don't have physical enemies, the devil and all of his hosts, Spiritual forces of darkness seek to devour us. Paul says, therefore, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might so that you can be able to stand against all the schemes of the devil. We're strong in the Lord. That's how we withstand these schemes. David is confident. He's renewing his confidence by reminding himself of who the Lord is. His solution to our fear is not just grin and bear it or put on a happy face. It is remember where your confidence truly lies, and it is in your Lord. You can be secure. You can be confident. The early church father Athanasius put it well when he says, if your enemies savagely attack you and the enemies become multitudinous, great word, as rank upon rank, eyeing you with contempt as if you have not been visited by grace, and on this account they wish to do battle, do not crouch in fear but sing the 27th Psalm. 
What do we do when we're afraid? We sing Psalm 27. We recite Psalm 27. What do we do when our friends are afraid? We, we tell them Psalm 27. We use this text for our souls, for the, for the souls of others. What are we afraid of today? Let us renew our confidence in the Lord. Secondly, in times of trouble, we seek the presence of the Lord. Verse 4 is a wonderful t- verse as well. As David says, one thing I ask of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Look at those three action words. Dwelling, gazing, inquiring. This is what we do in the presence of the Lord. We, we want to dwell there. And notice how he begins it. I love, one thing have I asked of the Lord. If you, had, if you could ask the Lord for one thing, what would it be? <laughs> I love it. Kids are the only audience participation I get around here, man. Well, that's, that's one. That's, that's, a, that's, that's one. I think I would ask the Lord, could I play one more inning of baseball? And I don't mean like old man league baseball. I mean like real baseball. Uh, or maybe you, you have your eye on a, a, a gal, guys, and you just want to date with that fly, honey. And you ask the Lord, how about it, Lord? Uh, be gracious to me. Or maybe you have a, a great mystery that you would like solved. Like I was thinking about where did the other sock to all my pairs of socks go. That's a mystery, isn't it? Does that happen to anybody else? How does this happen? I got, I got 20 pair of one sock. Actually, it's not a pair. 20, what well, used to be pair. Uh, David says, here's the one thing I ask of the Lord, to dwell in his house forever. Why? Why is that his one thing? Well, notice Psalm 26, verse 8. Oh, Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. He wants to be where the glory is. Therefore, he wants to dwell in the house of the Lord, not momentarily, but all the days of his life. And you say, how do we do that? Well, now we don't go to a temple. We have someone who is greater than the temple, Jesus himself, who gives us access to God all the days of our lives. The Holy Spirit has taken up residence in us we who are his now temple. And it's one thing we seek, and that is the presence of God through Jesus Christ by the enablement of the Holy Spirit. And this is great grace that we are allowed to dwell in God's presence, and we're not just torched in his presence in light of his holiness because we're safe in Jesus Christ, who is our refuge. And because we're in him, we have access to God. And in God's presence, our fears are banished. One thing I want, he says, that is to, to dwell on his house, and I love this next phrase, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I'm not just hanging around in his presence. I want to gaze upon that which is beautiful, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. One of the ways you'll fight pornography or any other lust is by seeing something infinitely more beautiful. You're made to see beauty, not, not that which is evil. You're made to behold the beauty of the Lord. This this speaks of admiration and affection. The way a husband who loves his wife looks at his wife and he sees her and he admires her. And he has affection for her. Our great admiration is for the Lord who is beautiful. 
For we have great affection for the Lord Jesus Christ who is beautiful. All of His character is beautiful. All of His teaching is beautiful. His work on the cross is beautiful. His work of redemption is beautiful. No one would have made it up. It, it, it has come to us by grace. And David says, I want to be in the presence of God because I want to behold beauty. And when we see beauty, we're changed. We're changed. Take a, a gal who moves up, up to Canada. She has no interest in learning uh, Canadian French. She meets a guy at the coffee shop who only speaks, a very handsome guy, Canadian French. She's suddenly got an interest in, in picking up this language, you see. What, what, what is it that changes her? Changes her behavior and everything else. Beauty. Beauty changes us. Where do we see beauty? We see it most vividly in the gospel. As we looked at in 2 Corinthians, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as we see him, 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are transformed more in his image. So Christian friend, let me just encourage you afresh this morning to be a gazer, to gaze regularly at the beauty of Jesus Christ. This is not a glance, this is a gaze. And may you see Jesus Christ not simply as useful, but as beautiful. Many see the Lord as useful. He can get me out of trouble, he can get me out of hell, but not beautiful. It's when we see him as beautiful that we are transformed. David says, here's the one thing I want. I want to see the beauty of the Lord. And to become a Christian, as Dane Ortland writes, is to be awakened to real beauty. It's to see the world differently because you have been transformed. We see his beauty in his word. We see his beauty in the gathered worship as we're doing today. So he says, I want to dwell, I want to gaze, I want to thoroughly inquire. That is, he wants to, as it were, sit at the Lord's feet in his presence, making petitions known, asking him for things, inquiring of him. I want to be in his presence and do that. And on what occasion does David want to gaze upon his beauty and inquire in his temple? It's in a time of great trouble. You see that in verse 5. For in the, the, he will hide me in his shelter, another expression of the temple, I think, in the day of trouble. And he will conceal me under the cover of his tent, which I think is another expression of the temple. That is the presence of God. In the presence of God, I'm hidden. In the presence of God, I'm concealed. My enemies can't touch me there, ultimately. This is very similar to like Romans 8.31. If God be for us, who can be against us? Well, obviously people will be against us. People will oppose us. But ultimately they will not prevail. Because we can say with Psalm 55, this I know the Lord is for me. If I'm in God's presence, David says, ultimately, I'm going to be right. If I know this God, if I'm gazing at this God, then whatever happens, I'm going to be okay. Because he is my God. He is my refuge. And I'm taking refuge as I'm seeking his presence. Another expression of refuge is he hides me upon this rock. He, he puts me up on an elevated level above my enemies. And he concludes this section in verse 6 by anticipating winning the battle. And not just winning the battle, but giving God praise when the battle is won. And now my head shall be lifted up. This is Psalm 3. He is the glory and lifter of my head. My head will be lifted up above my enemies, sign of triumph. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I love that. If you're in trouble, if you're in affliction, in a time of fear, anticipate singing to the Lord, giving him praise, and not with some 
ho-hum praise, but with shouts of joy. David says, I'm in the middle of this. I'm about to be shouting on the other side of this. And we know sometimes in this life we're not going to shout on the other side of it because it never gets resolved. But we know in the next life we will offer up our shouts of joy to Jesus Christ when there will be no more trouble. There will be no more days of trouble in the new heaven and new earth. And so David says, in the middle of it, I anticipate shouting with joy and singing and making melody to the Lord. Can you do that like in the middle of your pain and fear and trouble? I I anticipate singing praise. To God. It's a faith-filled commitment that David shows us here. Do you long to be in the presence of God? Do you long to commune with God? Do you long to behold His beauty, to inquire in His temple? David teaches us in the day of trouble to renew our confidence in the Lord, to seek the presence of the Lord. Thirdly, to cry out to the Lord. Verse 7, as I've said, shifts now and the mood changes as David speaks directly uh, a word of lament, a, a, a cry to the Lord. That's general in verses 7 to 10, and then it's specific in verses 11 and 12. It begins in verse 7 by saying, Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud, be gracious to me and answer me. You know, it's a gift of grace for the Lord to answer us. What about David puts that word of grace in there? It will be gracious for the Lord to hear us. It will be gracious of the Lord to answer us. He does not presume upon the grace of the Lord as though he is entitled for the Lord to hear him and respond to him. No, he's saying, please be gracious to me. Be gracious to me, for you have said, seek my face. And my heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Which is David's way of expressing a desire for the Lord's favor, I think. Don't hide your favor from me. Again, there's an emphasis on grace. I'm in great need of grace right now. You said, seek me, and I'm seeking you. Now don't hide yourself from me. Don't hide your grace from me. But be, show me your favor. He knows he's, again, not entitled to it. He knows that the Lord is holy. Next sentence. Turn not your servant away in anger. And again, don't you just love the psalmist? One moment it is, the Lord is my light and salvation. Whom shall I fear? <laughs> now it's like, don't turn me away in anger. He says, cast me not, forsake me not, O God of my salvation. That's the, the greatest threat, to, to, to feel abandoned by God, forsaken, as Jesus expressed on the cross as he took our place. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then David turns right around in verse 10 as if to preach to himself. Verse 9, it's, don't forsake me. Verse 10, well, if my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me in. <laughs> You can sense this holy conflictedness of David in in one breath. Oh, Lord, I'm so desperate. Please don't turn away from me. Don't show anger to me. Please don't forsake me. The Lord's not going to forsake me. Even though my father and mother might. I think this is a hypothetical, as most scholars do. I don't think that's a literal experience that David had. But he's saying, he's imagining a worst-case scenario. If my father and mother were to forsake me, that is to run away or to be killed. The Lord will never forsake me. He envisions the Lord as the perfect parent, the, the, the faithful parent. This is a wonderful word because many in our world have been forsaken by their mothers and fathers. As this has been called the fatherless generation. But our God is called father to the fatherless. 
As Hosea says, in you the orphan finds mercy. What a God we have. We call him Abba Father, who has brought us into his family, and he will never, ever forsake us. The love our Father has for us transcends any other love someone has for you. People will be fickle, and some may even forsake you. The Lord is faithful, always. He will take me in. Don't you love that? Not just a little high five, I'm here for you, pal. I'm actually going to take you in. You're coming, you're coming with me. You're sitting at my table. You're my child. This is how David encourages his heart, you see. Crying out to the Lord honestly, reminding himself that God is his father. And then he gives two specific petitions. The first is for guidance, and the second is for deliverance. This is what we, we pray. We pray very similar, simple prayers like this in times of trouble. Sometimes the trouble will remain, <clears throat> and we need guidance to understand how to navigate the complexity of it, right? How do we take your word, Lord, and apply it to my situation? Sometimes, though, and that's verse 11. Verse 12, sometimes the Lord takes us out of the situation. So look at 11. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. I need to know how to live, so teach me your ways. And then verse 12, give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. David's enemies are quite aggressive in this psalm. They breathe out violence. They're false witnesses. They're foes. They're adversaries. They're enemies. It's like an army. And he prays two things here. Teach me and deliver me. And we looked at previously, didn't we, in 2 Corinthians, Paul pleading with the Lord to remove the thorn. And the Lord comes back and says, nah but I'll give you more grace. I'll, I'll enable you to get through the difficulty, but I'm not removing it. It's good and right for us to pray that the trouble would be removed. Verse 12, Lord, would you just not give me up to these adversaries? Get me out of this. But if it doesn't happen, give me wisdom. Teach me your way that I may live on a level path. Derek Kidner, in writing about this psalm, looks at the first half of the psalm as about worship and the second half about seeking God's way through the trouble. And he makes this nice little sentence when he says, we are worshipers seeking God's face, and we are pilgrims seeking God's way. Those are two wonderful identities for a Christian. We are worshipers seeking God's face, beholding his beauty. We're also pilgrims seeking his way. How do we navigate this situation? In the day of trouble, we renew our confidence in the Lord, in the day of trouble, we seek the presence of the Lord. The day of trouble, we cry out to the Lord. And finally, the day of trouble, we wait for the Lord. David says something wonderful here. It's, it's like he, he turns to the whole congregation and says, I believe that I will look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. And he tells everyone, wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. I believe, David says, not in some future life after I die that I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord, but he's making a, a bold declaration that I believe right now in this present life, I'm going to see the goodness of the Lord right here in the land of the living. I'm going to see his goodness. That is, I'm going to enjoy his fellowship. I'm going to experience his joy. Sometimes in our trouble, we wonder. You can get so downcast that you will never see any more of the goodness of the Lord. And we have to fill our minds with truth when our emotions are going wild. 
I will see the goodness of the Lord. In fact, the goodness of the Lord is all around me. I need only look around to see his goodness. Do you believe it? And that's the real struggle, right? I believe, help my unbelief. I believe in this trial, in this moment, I'm going to experience the goodness of the Lord. I'm going to taste and see that the Lord is good in the presence of my enemies, that he'll prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And then he encourages all of us to wait for the Lord. To wait for the Lord. What does that mean? Well, this is just a way of speaking of trusting in the Lord. We, we wait on the Lord to act in the midst of our afflictions. We cry out to the Lord. We wait for His deliverance. Throughout the Psalms, we're told to wait. Isaiah says those who wait will be strengthened like an eagle. We put our faith in the Lord. Psalm 25 says, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. This is kind of a John 16, where Jesus says, in the world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Take courage. Jesus has overcome the world. We wait for him. We take courage now because of him. The saints throughout the ages have displayed incredible patience and trust in God. Joseph waited on the Lord a long time in Potiphar's house. Daniel waited a long time in captivity. The people of God waited for the coming of the Messiah. And Paul writes, he came by saying, but in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. They waited, he came. And now we, on this side of the cross, are waiting on the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we say to each other, be strong and take courage and wait for Jesus Christ. Because he who is our light and our salvation and our refuge will come. And when he returns, fear will be banished. The enemies of God will be banished. We will behold his beauty and the beauty of a new heaven and a new earth. None who wait for Jesus Christ will be put to shame. Then all wars will cease. Then all fears will cease. One thing we ask of the Lord Jesus today, Maranatha, come quickly. One thing I ask of the Lord, come quickly. We want to see your beauty. Saints, let your heart take courage. God always keeps his promises. Jesus Christ came right on time, and he will come again right on time. So we wait, not in a discouraged sense, but we wait in an anticipatory sense believing that he will come and ordering our lives now in light of that reality to come. He's coming. And one thing we ask to see is beauty then when we gaze upon the face of the glorified Jesus Christ. Let that spur you on to great faithfulness in your time of fear, your time of trouble. Father, we thank you for your word, how it encourages us when our souls are conflicted and troubled. And I pray for your people here today. Give us great confidence in you when we're fearful. Help us to turn our eyes from looking at worthless things and behold beauty. Beauty in the face of Jesus Christ as we behold him in the gospel. May we have an honest heart like David to learn to cry out to you and lament to you. And may we wait for you. 
We trust you. Renew our faith even now as we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, which points us ahead to that day that is a certainty. We pray this today in Jesus' good name. Amen.